you have a Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we are in week 9 of our series in this first chapter of Ephesians called From the Mountain Peak. If you remember, Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14 is one long single sentence in the Greek. And in that uh, explosion of doxology and praise, Paul is sort of stumbling over his words and overflowing joy and excitement. And so for the past two months, we've been working our way through it, two verses at a time. Today, we find ourselves in our ninth week, and we are ending this uh, doxological portion. And the next week, we will begin uh, the prayer portion of this chapter. Um, But we are looking today at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And the sermon is entitled Sealed with the Spirit. And so I invite you now to stand if you are able. Standing is an act of worship for the reading of God's word and the receiving of God's word as he gives it to us. So hear it now, Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you join me in one more prayer? Father, we ask that just as graciously as you have revealed yourself to us, that by your spirit, you would graciously illuminate the truth and that you would bring conviction, and with the conviction, not just information, but transformation. And in that, Lord, that we would be a people responding to the truth that you have given to us. Bless us now, O Lord, as we, your people, long to hear the voice of our God, our Creator, Maker, but also our Redeemer. And so, Lord, give to us listening ears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had an experience like this before? Um, Somebody gave you a recommendation to a restaurant uh, that was really uh, just so extraordinary that you had to take a trip down and go check it out yourself. And so you get in your car, you go on a long drive, you park, you show up to the restaurant, and there is just a crowd of people in front. And you realize, I'm not the only one who knows that this place is it. And so you decide, well, I came all the way here. You know, I can't go home now. And so you go up to the front desk and you uh, say, how long's the wait? When they ask you, how big's the party? You tell them and they say, an hour and a half. And you say, excuse me? And they say, well, an hour and a half. And you're going, okay, well, I mean, I came all the way here. It'd be a waste to drive back home now. So you give them their name. They jot the name on a list and then they walk away. Without any further instructions, they didn't get your phone number to text you. They didn't tell you they will announce your name. They didn't give you a pager. And so now you're kind of panicking. You're, you're anxious. What do I do? And so for the next 30 seconds or so, you just kind of observe what's happening. And you realize this is the system. Every few minutes or so, a woman pops out of the restaurant. She calls out a name. but She has a very soft voice and the crowd is very loud. And she waits about 30 seconds, and if no one responds, then she crosses the name off and goes to the next name. And so now you're in a dilemma. What do you do? Do you risk leaving and coming back in an hour and a half? But what if they call your name? And what if you can't get your seat because they've moved on? The other option is to just wait out in the cold for an hour and a half. And in that moment, the one thing that you wish they would do or one thing that they would give you is a pager, this little electronic device that says, well, you can go anywhere you want. You don't have to be anxious that you'll miss your call. You won't miss the table. You won't miss having a seat here. When this beeps and buzzes, you can simply 
return. In the same way, uh, the Christian life is like that. We've been promised a table and a seat in the kingdom of God. We've attained an inheritance in heaven, but now we're waiting for it. That's what this life is. It's a waiting for that. And on the one hand, it's official. God has written your name down in the list. He's legalized it. You're adopted in his family. There's an inheritance for you. That's what we talked about last week. But in the meantime, we're left kind of wondering, well, what about until now and when we receive that inheritance? And so many times it can feel uh, like we're anxiously waiting and wondering. Um, But in that time period, God hasn't left us uh, empty-handed. God has given us his spirit. And his Holy Spirit is like this pager, this assurance, this guarantee that when the time comes, you will receive what's been promised to you. That when the time comes, because you have the Spirit, you will receive your seat in the kingdom and you will feast at the table of the Lord. You see, one of the central ministries of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life is to do precisely this, to minister to you. You see, as surely as God the Son has secured your future in heaven, So God, the Spirit, secures your future in your heart. Does that make sense? God, the Son, has secured your future, and he's done it in heaven. But the Spirit now comes, and he secures your future in your heart. Jesus fastens for you the right to your inheritance, but the Holy Spirit fastens in you the assurance of your inheritance. If you are a child of God, you can therefore know with certainty that he will make good on his promise. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life now is to minister to you, to bring these about, to assure you, to to give you certainty. As we look at our passage this morning, here's the gospel truth. The Spirit is a seal of your identity and a guarantee of your inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a seal of your identity. He is a guarantee of your inheritance. So let's start by reading verses 13. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. See, Paul begins here with these words, in him you also. And he's saying you also because he's referring to the Gentile Christians in Ephesus. So he's saying not only were the Jewish Christians sealed with the Spirit, but you Gentile Christians enjoy the same privileges. And his point here is saying this, when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel, and then you believed in Jesus, the Spirit has now come into your life, right? So so what is the word of truth? What is the gospel? Well, Paul summarized it earlier in verse seven, simply like this. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So if you believe in Jesus, that there is redemption through his blood and that through him, your sins have been forgiven. If you are in Christ, then you have received the Holy Spirit. And Paul stresses in verse 13, this important distinction. He says, you must not only hear the word of truth, but you must also believe in him. You must hear the word of truth, but also believe in the word of truth. There is no promise. There is no inheritance for those who only hear the gospel. If you show up for church every Sunday, your entire life, you never once miss a service. And as a result, you hear the gospel preached weekly, so clearly, in fact, that you can now articulate it better than most other people. If you go to church, you hear the gospel, you can even articulate it, but you have no personal faith, then you have no claim on the inheritance of the kingdom. 
Hearing must lead to believing. That's what Paul is saying. Hearing and believing. Personal profession, faith and repentance, turning to Christ, turning from sin. And so when you hear and you believe, by faith you are united to Jesus. You are brought into God's family and you obtain an inheritance. That's Paul's logic. But he says, at that moment, the Spirit of God comes to seal in you the promise that the Son of God has come to secure for you. The Spirit is sealing in your heart the very promise that Christ has secured for you. So this is why Paul says Christians who have heard and believed, whether Jew or Gentile, have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So who gets the Spirit? It's very important. Who gets the Spirit is not determined by how spiritually mature you are or how much of an elite status as a Christian you have attained. It's not based on how many spiritual gifts you can exercise. It's not about your godliness above other people. There aren't varying measures of the Spirit as if officers get some allotment, your CG leaders get others, and then, you know, really low on the totem pole, um, you get some kind of less amount of it. The Spirit is not given only for, you know, really Expressive worshipers, people who raise their hand and you think, well, that person really has the spirit and that guy is just, you know, kind of hands folded and, you know, he's just meditating on the lyrics. So he has less of the spirit. The spirit doesn't work in degrees of varying measures like this. Paul is saying that every believer who has placed their faith in Jesus, who are united to him by faith, whether Jew or Gentile, is promised with the Holy Spirit. I bring this up because if you are a Christian here this morning, when you've walked through the store, whether you feel spiritual or not, whether you feel more spiritual because you did a really good job reading your Bible faithfully, or you feel unspiritual because your Bible's collected a lot of dust the past month, whether you come in this morning feeling like you did a really good job of loving and serving your family during this Thanksgiving break, or some of you come in and you feel horrible because you were irritated and angry and you were supposed to be the light of Christ, but you were really somehow the darkness of Christ, you feel awful. When you come in through the door, regardless of your self-perception, Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. And that's very important and good news to hear. You know, when I was a student in college, uh, I received from a church member, uh, an older church member who really wanted to uh, bless me, but he gave me this book on the Holy Spirit. And uh, it really messed me up because at the time I wasn't spiritually discerned enough to know um, as I was reading this book, that this book was really lacking theologically. Uh, and so it had uh, certain negative uh, outworkings in my life. And the premise of this book was basically that you had to host the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And the uh, better you were as a host, the more hospitable your heart was toward God, the more pleased God was to dwell with you, the more visits of God you would get from him. And so if you weren't working to make your life a holy habitation fit for him, then the spirit would be offended. Why would he want to come and be with you? And so your life was kind of like this bed and breakfast, right? And then the spirit came by and he yelped you and he saw that you had good reviews and your life was well kept and in order and clean, then he would be pleased to stay with you. But if he saw that your life was dirty and in shambles, then he would pass by you and go somewhere else. So you can imagine the kind of anxiety and worry and stress that resulted, a constant worrying of, was I being a good enough host for the Holy Spirit? I remember one time uh, as a praise leader in college, we were planning a revival, if you can plan such things. And we were praying and, you know, we all gathered around one day and we were praying. And, you know, I, I, I just kind of cringe saying this, but I, I remember saying like, guys, 
We're not being good hosts of the Holy Spirit. I don't think he would be pleased to be with us. And so we canceled the praise night. We canceled the, the whole thing that we had been pl- uh, planning for. And it's, it came out of this idea that, you know, some of us, uh, that the Spirit would come when we are hospitable for him, and he wouldn't come if our lives were somehow not well put together. Now, you may not have had an experience quite like this or quite this extreme, um, but oftentimes we have these kinds of fears and doubts in our lives. Uh, somehow as if, the presence of sin in my life um, means that uh, the presence of the Spirit will leave my life. Don't, don't we have these thoughts that, you know, if, if when you look at your life and you feel uh, dirty, you feel shameful, you feel unworthy, uh, maybe because of sins you've done or sins committed against you, when you feel this kind of way, we, we think something like, if God, if I'm so dirty and unworthy that God can't even look at me, you know, how much less could God ever come and dwell in me? And Apostle Paul's point is, you've received the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, not based on the quality or the condition of your faith and your life. You've received the promise of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. United to him, he's given you the Spirit. And he's promised because Jesus promised him. John chapter 15, verse 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. You see, the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a gift of God to receive, not a a reward to achieve. So Christian, if you are in this room and you believe, you've heard the gospel and you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, at work in you, doing a ministry in you. So what is he doing? What is that work? Is that work expressed through certain manifestations of gifts? What is a spirit-filled Christian look like? In this passage, Paul helps us by pointing out at least two of the ministries the spirit is doing in a Christian's life. The first is this. The spirit helps you know and live out of your identity. The spirit helps you know and live out of your identity. See, we're told in verse 13 that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. A seal in the ancient day was a form of uh, authenticity, right? It was a, fo- it was a, a way of, of symbolizing that this was uh, from somebody or belonged to somebody. And so you ha- uh, may have seen in maybe a historical drama or some kind of movie where what they would do is they would take a piece of wax, right? Like candle wax, and they would melt it on a document or on an object. And then you would take something like a signet ring or something, and you would press it down on the wax and leave the impression, this unique impression uh, that meant it was yours, that whatever the seal was on, this was the possession of the one to whom the seal belonged. And so there's a perfect picture of this. Esther, in the book of Esther, you have King Ahasuerus, and he's talking to his now queen, Queen Esther. And he says in Esther 8, verse 8, But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The fact that this edict was sealed with the king's ring meant that this document and the words were in it were of the king. That if you were to deny or reject this document, it was as if you were denying and rejecting the king. Now I mention this because when Paul says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, what he's saying is that believers who have been united to Jesus have been marked as those who belong to God. The sealing of the Spirit identifies us as no longer belonging to the world, but now belonging to God. 
And this is foundational and fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. If you were to go out in the streets and you were to ask somebody, what does it mean to be a Christian? There's a good chance that their definition of a Christian, the identity of a Christian, would be determined by a list of do's and don'ts. A Christian is someone who turns the other cheek, you may hear. A Christian is someone who goes to church on Sunday. You may even say a Christian is one who follows Jesus. But a Christian is not primarily identified by their behavior, but by their belonging. A Christian is one who has been sealed with God's spirit and therefore belongs to God. Covenant, his people. You know, this fall, uh, Eunice and I have been hosting a discipleship group in our home most Sunday evenings of the month. And uh, one hosting trick that we've uh, come to realize we must do is when we put out bottled water right next to it, we must put a black permanent marker. Why? Because if that marker isn't there, by the end of the night, there will be 20 bottles of open water that are not yet finished. 20 bottles of water. And we only have 12 people in the group. How does that happen? These bottles accumulate because as long as they remain unnamed, they remain unclaimed. But by simply writing your name on it, you are indicating this bottle is mine. Not the other bottles. Those aren't my responsibility. This bottle, the bottle that I've sealed with my initials. When God gives you his spirit, he's sealing you. In effect, he's writing his initials on you. You are mine. You are my responsibility. I'm claiming you. You belong to me. And that becomes your primary identity as a Christian. And so the work of the spirit as he's sealing this truth into your life is he's taken all that God has said about you and he's pressing it into your heart, sort of like a seal is pressing into the wax. He's sealing into your heart so that you also believe what God has said about you. This is the fundamental identity of every Christian, one who belongs to God, sealed by his spirit. And therefore, as a Christian, you're not called to uh, figure out your identity or form your identity or forge your identity. Christians find their identity in the one who has sealed them. And the Spirit of God is present now at work in your life, and he is trying to help you understand more and more who God has made you to be. And so Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What is he doing? He's pressing in your heart your identity. And this is important then, because identity is such a big issue in our culture today. You know, your identity is not something that you discover. Your identity is not something that you decide your identity is not something that you determine. That's the message of the world, not the message of the gospel. The gospel says your identity is first and foremost, not about who you are, but whose you are. Not about who you are, but whose you are. Who do you belong to? I belong to God. I've been sealed with his spirit. That is who I am. The second ministry of the spirit done in your life is this. The spirit helps you know and live out of your inheritance to live out of your inheritance. Look at verse 14 where Paul writes this. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? You see, Paul writes here that the Spirit is our guarantee of, an in, of our inheritance. But if you have an ESV translation, there should be a little footnote. And where guarantee is, you'll see on the very bottom that it can also be translated as down payment. 
right? Down payment. And I actually think that down payment better conveys the point Paul is trying to make. Because what he's saying is, uh, the Spirit doesn't only guarantee you of a future inheritance. He's actually saying the Spirit is a part of that future inheritance. The Spirit is a part of that uh, first installment of what God will give you one day. He's a down payment of sorts, a, a first installment of what you will receive in the kingdom. Because remember this, the kingdom of God, the inheritance that we receive, it's not material. It's not something to have and to hold. The kingdom, the inheritance is, is the fullness of salvation, receiving the kingdom, receiving God. And so what Paul is saying is when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're receiving a down payment, a foretaste of what you will enjoy in heaven. So we get this wonderful privilege of enjoying the presence of the Spirit now before we even get to heaven so that we can long for heaven even more. You know, think about it like this. This past week, and was, uh, this past week was Thanksgiving. Now, uh, I hope many of you enjoyed a good meal with family and friends. Uh, but let me ask you this question. What was your role in preparing the Thanksgiving meal? Some of you putting your heads down because you're real guilty. And others of you, you know, putting your heads high because you took charge. You were the admiral of the kitchen. Now, what was your role? What place uh, did you play in preparing that meal? Um, you know, I, I tried to do my part. I stood around. I offered these hands of service, but uh, they were clearly more un unhelpful than helpful. Uh, but what I lacked in contributing in culinary skill, I made up for in being an excellent taste tester. And I love doing it. I'm very good at it. Taking a bite of this, taking a bite of that, helping determine, does that need more salt? Does that need more pepper? Does that need more butter? Yes, it always needs more butter. <laughs> and all of those bites that you're getting, right? What you taste in the kitchen is a kind of down payment of what you will feast on in the dining room. You get to taste in part now what will be served at the feast later. That's what the Spirit of God is. He is a down payment, a first installment of the glories of heaven given to you now so that there's a bit of heaven coming into your heart now so that you long for the inheritance to come. That's what Paul means when he calls the Spirit a guarantee or a down payment. That having the Spirit in you, having his friendship and his fellowship, having his peace and having his presence, having his comfort, having his counsel, all of these things are evidence of a great and glorious inheritance waiting for us in heaven. And so the more you long for heaven, the more you willingly and easily say no to the world. As I'm in the kitchen and I'm trying this new recipe of mac and cheese, that there's like seven cups of cheese in this, and I'm tasting and I'm thinking, this is good. And as I'm waiting there for, to eat this for dinner, that picture, that taste of it makes me look at the snacks that are in the pantry and go, oh, no, I can wait on that. I don't need that now. In the same way, the taste of the Spirit, having him now, his presence and his ministry at work in us, allows us, therefore, to look at the things of this world and say, no, I don't need this now because there's a future inheritance awaiting me. You, you see, having this down payment really begins to change your attitude and your actions here on this earth. Like, let's take this common example. Imagine that you are uh, financially not doing so well, that you are lacking much uh, materially. If you are promised that uh, through this 
long, you know, lost relative that he that he has now written in his will that you would receive his full estate, and um, that that's on its way to you. Um, but as a down payment, you've been given the key to his mansion, and so you know this is real. This is not a scam. Doesn't that begin to change the way you live your life now? If you know the promise of inheritance coming, so if you have a broken car and you don't have the money to fix it. While you take the bus a little while longer, you can endure that without complaint or anger because you know this car will soon get fixed and I can endure this. If you have to go to the hospital, you won't be so overwhelmed with anxiety and fear. How am I going to pay all these medical bills? Because you know there will be provision made for you soon. If you have loans to pay back and you feel like uh, it's stacking high that you won't feel tempted to, to steal out of desperation or to hoard for yourself. If you have an opportunity to help somebody out and you look at what little you have, you're actually free to give now because you don't have to worry about the scarcity. You will soon be provided in abundance. You see, knowing you have a future inheritance actually begins to change things now. And so spiritually, what does that mean? The spirit is guaranteeing. He is the down payment of what you will soon acquire. In the inheritance, you will have a new resurrected and glorified body. What does that mean now? That means in this life, as our outer body is wasting away with aches and pains and disease and disabilities, we can rejoice even now that our inner self is being renewed. In the inheritance, we will receive final liberation from every remaining effect of sin. So in this life, we can fight for holiness with hopeful tears in light of the promised world where sin will be no more, the power and presence will be eradicated. In the inheritance, we will be fully healed of all the ways that we've been hurt and harmed by others in words and in actions. So in this life, we don't have to be hurting people who go around hurting people. But as healed people, we can begin to help heal people. In the inheritance, we will receive our full justification in Christ, a final declaration of our righteousness before God. So in this life, I can lay down my attempts at being better than you, at trying to climb over you to attain righteousness. I can also give up my attempts for trying to knock you down in order to be better than you. In the inheritance, we will receive all the riches our hearts could ever want and ever need. So in this life, I can put aside stinginess and selfishness and embrace a life of generosity and of selflessness that reflects the abundant kindness of God. You see, dear friends, for those who are in Christ, you've been given the Spirit. And the Spirit in you is doing a work. He is reminding you of who you are, sealing this identity. I belong to God. And he is guaranteeing your inheritance. Jesus came. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. He rose from the dead in the resurrection you needed him to, but he didn't stop his work there. He ascended to heaven and in ascending to heaven, he sent the spirit, his spirit to come now so that until you join him again in heaven and this earth, you can know and live out your identity as one who belongs to God. And you can know and live out of your inheritance, the great riches that God has in store for you. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Praise be to God. Let's pray.